podcast is brought to you by uh, 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 Here we go Everybody be cool, this is a robbery Need you cool Are you cool? Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to the Church of Tarantino podcast. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and this is our season two kickoff, officially titled Under the Influence. Each month during our second season, myself along with my special guest will be taking an inquisitive look at two films that influenced Tarantino to see if he just referenced them in his films or blatantly ripped them off. The first film we will be placing under the microscope is his directorial debut from 1992, Reservoir Dogs. And the films that we will be reviewing are Stanley Kubrick's 1956 noir film, The Killing, and Ringo Lamb's 1987 crime film, City on Fire. But before we get this investigation underway, it is my pleasure to welcome to the show for his first official main episode appearance, the host of such podcasts as the Asian Cinema Film Club, the Movies and Tea Podcast, the TV Good Sleep Bad Podcast, and the Game War Podcast. All the way from England, it's Mr. Elwood Jones. Welcome, Mr. Jones, and may Tarantino be with you always. Well, thank you very much for having me back on. It's always nice to come and hang out with you in the murder basement and <laughs> do we call yeah. these shows? <laughs> the Christmas theme yeah, murder no, it's basement. Very classy now. It's not as murdery <laughs> as it is cluttered now. So now, since I last spoke with you, have you added another podcast? And is it all you do is podcasts? Like, are you just a professional podcaster? And please don't say yes, because I'm going to be very jealous. So I just have this horrible habit where I, if I have spare time, I have to fill my fill that time with something. So, like, if someone's like, oh, do you want to, like, go and pick apples and Chernobyl? And I've got, like, a couple of days. It's like, yeah, let's let's go. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I t- try to, like, take time off and, like, not do projects of just, you know, hang out watch something and I find myself getting so twitchy if I've not got something happening and podcasting much like writing is just a great way to build on my obsessions which is um as you can tell mainly on the courty variety so as i said the great thing about podcasting is you're getting to hang out with people who are on the same sort of nerdy wavelength as yourself and getting to geek out for a couple of hours and you don't you're not tied by like geography and times and whatever it's still like it's just really fun to sort of hang out and share opinions on things because if you i don't you probably all had it like when you're work and it's all like someone says oh i'm like really into films and you think oh great this is great another filmy and then they say oh i'm just like really into marvel movies and it's sort of like that glass <laughs> shattering is like your hopes are dash but with like podcasts yeah. and stuff it's all like you can meet someone who wants to talk about like evil dead for two hours you can hang out with people like yourself and just like yes. do four hours on tarantino if we wanted yes. if anyone wants to listen to that is i would hope so because they're listening to the show so it would be weird to be on a tarantino named podcast 
podcast and not want to hear about stuff that has to do with Tarantino. It would just be a very weird thing you fell upon yeah. <laughs> if this is what you're doing. Now, of your podcast, yes. what is your main podcast? Is it? It's. I believe it's the Asian Cinema Film Club. Correct? I mean, you post on that. Yeah, a lot. Asian Cinema Film Club is uh, sort of my main main variant. The other one, obviously, being movies and tea. Obviously, with Asian Cinema Film Club, it's originally started off as an offshoot of um, the first podcast I launched, which was the Mad Band Downright Strange Showcase, which is a cult cinema one. And I just wanted to do something with Asian cinema, so I contacted Stephen, who I'd done a couple of episodes with, and said, do you want to come on? I'm going to be doing the show about Asian cinema. And he came on, we talked about Ghost in the Shell. He came back the next week and talked about King Kong Escapes. And then it was sort of like, he just kept coming back, because I sort of like, he stumbled into being my amazing co-host, and we just have this wonderful <laughs> dynamic and it was kind of the same with with kim who i do movies and tea with i met her through doing mbds and we started working together on the site she was with at the time um and uh we sort of accidentally even though at that point i was like i am not launching any more podcasts and they were sort of like we ended up launching two more podcasts together so uh <laughs> i just uh there's just something about podcasts and it's just such enjoyment in having great conversations about film and podcasting is just this great platform for you to meet other like-minded people and just really sort of dig in to film discussion in a way that you probably don't get through other mediums like if you're writing it's very sort of from your perspective um with podcasting it's sort of like we have this open time slot we're not bound to like okay you've got 15 minutes to cram in all your information it's yes. sort of like we can pick one thing <laughs> and we can just like really expand get into the guts of this thing and uh yeah, I'm now in the position where I think all my nerdy obsessions I now will do podcasting or writing or something about. Um, and this is what keeps me sane, I guess, it's to an extent. I mean, it's a lot of fun because also when you get to talk to someone, and again, they don't have to be like-minded as far as like, I'm not expecting people to come on my show and just fall at the feet of Tarantino and, you know, just praise him for everything. That would be boring. I like that we could have a discussion and we're going to get into a discussion. I have no idea how you're going to feel about certain things and I'm <laughs> going to feel about certain things that we're going to talk about. We may have different opinions, but I think because we're both coming from a similar feeling, it's not like when you talk with someone maybe at work or a friend and it's just like, well, it's fucking sucks and they just they either downplay something or they love it but they don't really give you any insight as to why they feel good or bad about something they just have a very straightforward this is awesome or it fucking sucks and there's that's yeah, it yeah, you get yeah. nothing else or or if they disagree with you you're a fucking idiot and like it almost becomes like almost becomes very antagonistic and almost almost you're ready to fight over something that is very trivial you know what i mean like like if people don't think tarantino's great i'm not gonna <laughs> fight them over that's just it doesn't matter it's an opinion like if you don't like them you yeah. don't like them that's perfectly fine i like them it's not like i'm like i'm gonna kill you but some people get that revved up, but it's nice to be able to talk with people like you and all the people I've had on where we can have conversations and whether we agree or disagree, it doesn't turn into like, well, fuck that guy or fuck this person. You know, it's, it's like, oh, that's a good point. I never thought of it that way. Or, oh, you know, like it, it can open your eyes onto things. And I think that's the people who really enjoy podcasting. I think it's really one of the reasons that I still enjoy doing it. Besides meeting people who I enjoy talking with, it's fun to have these conversations and actually, you know, sit there and I'll pass on my ideas and you pass on yours. Like, I've had people open my eyes to things that I didn't even see, and I've watched these movies a thousand times. And, you know, and I hope that sometimes I've said some things that people are like, oh, I didn't even realize that. You know, it's just, it's really just helping another person see some things that they may or may not have noticed. And it's not like a, you know, like it's an end all be all. I'm putting my flag in the ground, and you're either on my side or I'm taking your country kind of thing. Yeah, there's certain podcasts out there who sort of like, you know, this is the be all and end all. And I think the best ones are the ones who sort of present their side and have someone in, even if it's complete opposite side. And you, it's that finding that middle ground and sometimes through 
through the medium of podcasting, you can find like an understanding of a film. There's certain films like Dog Tooth or Fur, uh, Farewell Dragon Gay Then, where I've had no real feelings on it. And then I've done like podcasts on it. And then it's suddenly like, oh, now I see it. It's like now I, I feel like less stupid for not understanding something or there's so like, well, that's what that meant. It's sort of like just having someone to sometimes like explain it to you or just getting to see someone, why someone really enjoys something is just often quite uh, refreshing rather than just like having being in this echo chamber of just like, yeah, everything's great, which I think is, uh, <laughs> yes, yes, what it can be with like certain, it's why I don't like hang along a lot of groups of like certain fan groups, such as like, you know, Star Wars or Marvel, because they have the one note of like, it's all great, they can do nothing wrong, and then yes, unless they do I something that. that, unless they try to do something different, uh, don't they like try yes, to venture yes. a little out of the box, and then so it's like the worst thing ever. It's like, I mean, I still haven't forgiven. Yes. Uh, them for basically cancelling the female Ghostbusters before it even get a chance. And for what? So we could get the Force Awakens Ghostbusters, which I did enjoy, but <laughs> grudgingly, I was like sitting there going, damn it, this is really good. <laughs> I just didn't see why they had to like, like beat down the female Ghostbusters. I mean, it had the potential to open up that Ghostbusters verse they were talking yeah. about. So you would have this team, and then you'd have another team, and we'd have like a multiverse of Ghostbusters, which is basically how the Ghostbusters fan verse works. They're not cosplaying as characters, they're like the division of the Ghostbusters Inc. So it's yes. sort of like, you have the Dallas branch, yeah. the New York branch, and they just play themselves in Ghostbuster costumes. But apparently their fandom doesn't work the same when it comes to the films. I have noticed fandoms and sadly, most a lot of fandoms are men. And that's that's there's the problem. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of the fandoms are <laughs> I'm really treading into hate mail, but a lot of <laughs> fandoms seem to be men who don't do well with ladies sometimes, if that makes some sense. What I think we all know what I'm talking about maybe some well you know but they have this <laughs> this issue with there's a woman or god forbid a person of color oh mm. my goodness like star wars is one of the biggest ones and i'm a huge star wars fan i love star wars but i also will take a shit on star wars when it doesn't which is why i have my cheeky bastards podcast my side podcast and the most recent episode i did back in december as i praised andor as being one of the best tv shows out there they did a phenomenal job with that and took a shit on the book of boba fett because it's garbage <laughs> it's unnecessary i thought obi-wan was very disappointing very disappointing disappointing that show there's a lot of stuff out there that's disappointing but it's okay to have disappointing and if other people like it fantastic but to hate something because the person in it isn't white or a male i have a big problem with that fandom and that's one of my biggest problems with star wars fans is that racist bigotry that they have in them when we're talking about star wars being a <laughs> movie about aliens fucking aliens and we're having a problem there's women or people of color in are you kidding me it's a fucking fantasy show and then like you said with marvel i have a couple friends who everything marvel does is amazing no the last phase of marvel was garbage it's okay for fans to have an issue and you should be able to have an issue you shouldn't just love everything you should hold some of these properties feet to the fire so you get good stuff from them you should have a voice but it should be also a critical voice with at least you have some kind of backing and not just like well i don't like the new little mermaid because they're gonna make the, a mermaid black yes that's the problem yes. yeah a black woman a black half black woman half fish that's how will the how will the children get to go to school well how will how will they all be able to survive so I understand. And that's why we're doing this season is to take a look at Mr. Tarantino to see if what people say about him, his detractors, are right or if they may be just haters. So we're going to do that. But first, you get your first guest question. And they have grown to six <laughs> over the over the course of the year, thanks to my friend Ryan Rebecca. These would be five, but okay. they're good. And this will be interesting because some of the people I have on are some new people who may not necessarily be 
big-time Tarantino fan since the second season. really isn't about the love of Tarantino. It's the looking at Tarantino critically to see if he is a person who is a genius at finding references and being able to put them into his films or if he is a hack and has been stealing them. And I've just been blind to it. So my first question for you, are you a Tarantino fan? Yes, I am. I'm a uh, fan Across the board, um, I've been a fan since, oh, I think it's since I saw Reservoir Dogs for the first time. I didn't see it when it first came out because it was much too young and over here in the UK. We have age ratings, which means that you can't like find a homeless person to take you to the cinema to see uh, Reservoir Dogs <laughs> or something. you got to wait for it to come on, on uh, TV and hope that it's like a good channel, not one that edits everything. So originally I saw I saw part of Pulp Fiction first and then wasn't sure what it was about. And I came, I then saw Reservoir Dogs and came back to uh, Pulp Fiction. And uh, yeah, it's sort of been an ongoing obsession since. I think because Tarantino basically does a lot of scrapbooking with things that I'm really into. So like Pop Samurai movies and Kung Fu and a lot of Asian cinema. Um, so there's a lot, he takes into a lot of things that I really like. And it was so fun to have a director who obviously borrows things from those uh, different elements and then scrapbooks them in together. And obviously the mastery way that he does it. I think we heard your gateway drug, but what is your gateway drug? into the Tarantino verse. Uh Rest of my Dogs. <laughs> that was my that was uh where it all began. I for whatever bizarre reason I've watched them all in chronological order. And uh every time there's been a new Tarantino movie come out, it's always been like a big ex sort of excitement. I was really happy when he got out of the spaghetti western phase. Certainly that run up to and including Glorious Bastards was uh, pretty spectacular. Um, and the fact he releases them so sporadically uh, means that it's always easy to sort of catch up because you sort of like get over one and then you've got a couple of years and then another one comes along and you're like, oh, I'm ready for another one now. So Yes, yeah, so this next one might be maybe 2050 before we're going to see it. <laughs> I don't know when he's going to release this. <laughs> now, what is your favorite Tarantino film? Favorite Tarantino film? Um... I'm kind of weird in the fact I love Kill Bill Volume 1. For myself, I think that's Tarantino really coming into his his own as a director. I think after Jackie Brown um, was sort of like the last of his sort of like learning pictures and then he comes at Kill Bill um, in with like all the manner, the height of his powers. And the fact that he does till one and two, two films back to back, were perfect split down the middle. One obviously being his Eastern, two being his Western. And obviously when I saw Kill Bill Volume 1, it was just just, I looked and it was like, this is just pop samurai fun. This is like Baby Clown Pearl. This is Lady Snowblood. Uh, like Sake and Sachuichi is hitting a lot of notes I really like. Uh, the fact that it had Deli Go and Go with a ball and chain, just like the fight scenes. So just sort of like every, in the lead up to it, I was sort of like so many like newspaper curtains and things I like bought just to like try and get every little piece of information and just like see all the things it was uh, sort of referencing there. But no, seeing it, then it's like seeing all these fun little nods um, and just how that film is sort of styled. And I think it's also one of the few films that hasn't been sort of run into the ground, really. Um, I know things like Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs has sort of been done to death. And when you look at something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's a certain podcast of doors that talk that one to death and the Westerns never really held much. But Kill Bill, uh, Volume 1, and then Death Proof um, after it would be like, those are my uh, my favourites, really. So You may or may not have been on the Death Proof <laughs> In your opinion, what is Tarantino's most underappreciated film? Most underappreciated film, uh, Death Proof. I think we're now in a period where people are starting to go back and reevaluate just how good that movie is. As you get older, you also start to appreciate Jackie Brown more. I think that's the problem with Jackie Brown because it's an older people relationship. It's uh, so when you get older, <laughs> yes, you, I know when you well. get older, it's all like, oh, this is nice to see people my own age making out. Yes. But no, Death Proof is 
I mean, when it came out, obviously, it had the problems with the split here in the UK. And it's just, when you look at the car crash sequence, I mean, he set out to throw his hat into the arena of car exploitation and make the greatest car chase movie possible. And I say he did a pretty damn good job. It's not my yeah. favourite of the uh, genre, but it's certainly well up there in that top five. And just to some of the elements of that film, from, like, the characters through to, just like I said, the action sequences, it's just phenomenal throughout. And uh, one that I think deserves a lot more love than people just sort of dismissing it as being like, oh, it's just one big car chase movie. And you think, well, we watched Mad Max Fury Road, which was also just one big car chase. And we all kind of love that. So I think maybe because we all saw Fury Road, we all thought, well, huh, maybe Death Proof isn't so bad then. So we're going back and reevaluating <laughs> it. Who is your all-time favorite character in the Tarantino-verse? Um, my favorite character, I go back and forth over this, and both are from Pulp Fiction. It's, I'm trying to remember his uh, name now, but uh, Tarantino's uh, character in Pulp Fiction. Jimmy. Jimmy. Jimmy, I love Jimmy. <laughs> I think we mentioned the Death Crew panel. I, there's so much about Jimmy that I sort of resonate yes. with, and I know you've got the Funko of him, which I continues to elude me. <laughs> but is, uh, the more I've watched that film, I also really like the character Lance, Eric Stoss's uh, character, and I think just the fact that there's one conversation he has where he's on the phone, he's sort of like, if I bring a girl goes OD'd over to your place, I'll give her the shot. <laughs> and when he's like phoning me, he's sort of like, are you on a cell phone? Fake caller, fake caller, fake caller. Yeah, caller, fake caller. And the conversation he has with his his wife, um, and it's sort of like when he's looking for the little black medical book, or when she shares him, he's sort of like, he's sort of like, Lance, I'm probably tell you not to call it this time. <laughs> And he's just there watching like Mark's brothers <laughs> while he's in cereal. So a certain charm to his There are a lot of great side characters. Yep. And now your last question. Whose career would you like to see Tarantino give a boost to with his last film? Oof. If it is in fact his last film. Anthony Wong. Oh. Anthony Wong, I think, is he's a workhorse of in Asian cinema. He's been in a lot of weird movies. Um, I think he gets kind of discriminated against within the industry, but he's made a lot of really interesting movies. And often, if you look at a lot of his cat-free movies, he will be the best thing in them. But he's done films in the West. He's done films in the um, the East, which is obviously his main thing. But he's done pretty much everything. I mean, he was like a mainstay of the cat-free industry. So he's doing things such as like Ebola Syndrome and Untold Story 1 and 2. Um, as he's got older, he's gone on to be, you can see like the evolution of the characters he's played. And now he's like doing characters like Ip Man. He's in Ip Man, The Final Fight, which is by money, one of the great uh, Ip Man movies of this exploitation movement. Uh, mm. Obviously, we've got the Donnie Yen saga, which is fantastic. And I think what Anthony Wong brings to the character is much more of a character study than the martial arts side. And to see this sort of aging master. And there's a shot at the end where he's practicing on the uh, training dummy and they juxtapose it against some footage of the real Ip Man doing the same movements and it's just an absolutely phenomenal performance and I think he would be one of those actors I think would while he doesn't need a boost I think it would be great for him to have that so a lot more people in sort of like the West especially to sort of like be um see see him do a performance and for him to get that sort of recognition that I think a lot of people in Asian Simon know who he is, uh much like Danny Lee and Chayon Fat. And while Chayon Fat would obviously be fun to see because obviously Tarantino's a big fan of Chayon Fat, I think that there's nothing really that he's gonna add to a Tarantino movie where Anthony Wong, there's so many sides to that guy and his performances. I think it would just be really kind of interesting to see him come in and, and uh, come in and do something. Fantastic. The 
The time has come to find out if Quentin Tarantino is a cinematic genius who has put his own spin on the references he's cherry-picked from some of his favorite films that have influenced his career. Or if he's, as his detractors say, a talentless hack who has blatantly ripped off moments from those films and claimed them as his own. This month's suspect is Reservoir Dogs. Let the investigation begin. It's time for our first film. It's time to call our first witness. first witness is the 1956 noir heist film The Killing, written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Crook Johnny Clay assembles a five-man team to plan and execute a daring racetrack robbery, starring Sterling Hayden, Colleen Gray, Vince Edwards, J.C. Flippin, Maria Windsor, and Ted DiCorsia, made on a budget of $320,000, but only grossing $203,000 worldwide. The Killing holds an 8 rating on IMDb and has a 96 critics and 92 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Now taking the witness stand, The Killing. All right, so our first one up today is the amazing Stanley Kubrick, who is my second favorite director of all time. Same here. <laughs> it's obviously Tarantino, then Kubrick. Again, like I said, it was probably Kubrick first because I watched his films first before you know before Tarantino's catalog really started to build, and then Tarantino took over. I love Stanley Kubrick. So it's like one in one. Yeah. I was going back because people have talked about, you know, if you look at everyone's body of work, is there a flawed film in Kubrick's? And I know people say, well, what about Eyes Wide Shut? He died before he got a chance to edit that. The film you see is not the film that would have been out had he been alive to finish the actual cut of Eyes Wide Shut, his last film, which is unfortunate. Still a great film. Still enjoy the hell out of that film. It was awesome to go back and watch this film, The Killing, which I have seen. These are one of his early films. And much like Tarantino, I think maybe the reason the two of them are my favorites is they very rarely dabble in the same pool more than once. They really cross different genres. They jump into different forms all over the place. Now, obviously, Tarantino leans into like Spaghetti West. Like some of his favorite genres, he'll lean in there. But even his two Westerns, his two official Westerns, they're completely different Westerns. You know, one's really more of a slave revenge, more of a southern antebellum Western as opposed to a, you know, full throttle Western. And even his Western with the Hateful Eight is more like a horror, the thing Western than it is your standard John Wayne or even Clint Eastwood type of Western. That's what I also love about Kubrick is he is able to dance in so many different genres. Now, this film came out in 1956. It is black and white and it is a noir film. And man, is it a good film. I've watched a couple of older films recently, even some that Tarantino has mentioned in his book. And I I hate being the person who, you know, I try to remember the time at which they were made. I try not to look at them through 2022 Mm. eyes because, or actually I should say 2023 eyes, since technically when people hear this, we're in the first week of the new year. It's, It's hard though. It is hard. It's hard to have progressed through and then to go back and look at some films like and still be like, oh, that's a good film. You know, you can just go, oh, acting's awful. That's a terrible scene. However, The Killing, I feel, and I'm going to ask you, I feel it holds up to the test of time. And we're talking it being 66, 67 years old. What are your thoughts on The Killing and rewatching it or for the first time or for your next go around? This is the first time watching myself. I've never seen this one before, mainly because when... The Kubrick movies, they were in sort of rotation. It tend to focus more on the later films or the prime Kubrick era. So like 2001 Space Odyssey, Shining, The Shining, not A Shining, Full Metal Jacket, the ones that are sort of 
when we think of Kubrick, that the ones that uh, we sort of go to. So there was a few gaps in the old uh, filmography that I never got to see in too much later, seeing things like Barry Lyndon and now this one. And because this obviously being a film noir, it's not one that I sort of instantly wanted to sort of hunt down. But obviously you posed it for the show and I was like, I will definitely check that out. And the fact that it's got a Criterion release is an added bonus because it just looks absolutely beautiful. And it plays kind of like this double-edged sword because... The way Kubrick directs us, it feels like you're watching a modern movie. Uh, there's a lot of really sort of clever, fancy tricks with the camera work, and certainly in terms of how the story is told that we tend to see with this era. I agree 100%. I made some notes before we got dive into the influences that we find in this film. But in this film, and it's not just this film, I think it's the, the noir films of the time. But women are one-note characters who really only exist for men's needs and who are nothing without them. They're either damsels or they're femme fatales. Like, there's really one of two plays. Like, the two females in the film, like, the one girl uh, at the beginning uh, with uh, Hayden's character there, you know, he's just got out of prison and <laughs> she's literally, she, I waited five years for you and, like, I'm nothing without you. Like, it's just, I don't know, it's just such a weird way that the people were thought of, especially women back then. They're just, like, air headed women who could do nothing without a man like I, I don't know how to breathe or talk without you they're either there for his manly necessity needs or they use their sexuality to control men so i like the fact that tarantino did not ever fall into that trap and use those tropes so that's that's a, a plus in my book also this film that's a little uh, surprising but not really surprising is that you know what sometimes if a woman gets out of line you just gotta <laughs> slap her around a little bit that was <laughs> i forgot about that in this film <laughs> i forgot that uh the one character there the one femme fatale where you know she eavesdrops on the secret meeting and then they beat the fucking shit out of her they literally torture her she's without knowing she's the cop in the fucking chair from Rushwood Dogs I mean that's not an inspiration but it does feel like you know that's who she is she's you know she she stumbled upon the uh, meeting that she wasn't supposed to and they want to find out how much she knows and if uh, the other character in the film is uh, trying to you know either rat them out or take their money and they beat the dog shit out of her which you don't see that in film anymore so you know we've progressed a little bit and there was one thing that I noticed if you get shot in the gut, Mr. White in this film of Reservoir Dog says, takes a long time to die from. However, in 1956, you died pretty quickly if you were shot in the gut. As the female I'm talking about was shot in the gut, and she died very, very fast in that film. So I guess the uh, bullet wounds have taken longer now that we, we've progressed in science. I guess if you get shot in the gut now, modern days, it could take some time for you to die. But luckily, you should be glad that you weren't shot in the 50s because you died <laughs> pretty, pretty rapidly. <laughs> what, were some of the thi- what were some of the things you noticed in this film? That uh, that stand out from the time period. Oh wow! I just never <laughs> thought about about that. But uh, something I noticed. Uh, this is a real fun fact: is that the hired goon um, is at a chess and checkers club, which actually ties in. Yes, yes. A, a Russian too. Yeah, um, he was actually um, a professional wrestler. That was his main trade. And he was also noted as being the only chess playing wrestler. He was on the cover of Chess Magazine with Stanley Kubrick to promote this film. He trained with uh, Bruno Sammartino, who is, you're into wrestling, is a legend. Yes, he is. If you're not into wrestling, you will not know what the hell the fuss is about. <laughs> but yeah, that was uh, something I really noticed. Um, the apartment layout. The fact that everything's very sort of very uh, tiny apartments that your lounge is also where you're going to be eating meals and everyone sits around basically a card table yes. to have their meals and stuff. And those were like the the main things. I know it's a lot of sort of fashion styles. I mean, obviously you have the treatment of women within the 
film, which <laughs> I think I looked less over because these aren't particularly nice people. These are criminals, yes. these are hoods, they're thugs, they're not particularly nice people. And the person that she's married to is kind of like a wet blanket to begin yep. with, uh, who she's been stepping out on. <laughs> yes, she has. Quite but a obviously a, a leader of this group um, and the main sort of players who have been this this plot they're all professional criminals they're not nice people and they annoys the fact they're not nice people even though obviously johnny clay has a bit of a charm to him also has a uh, bit of an underlining um homosexual relationship with his friend that we see later in the film as well which i think is kind of groundbreaking for the period so they have this uh hint of like maybe they just run away and where you know he should step out in his marriage where the goes somewhere where these laws don't matter which i think is really sort of groundbreaking for yes. the time and some who wouldn't see so I wonder how much of that got flew over the heads of the audience back then too, though. It's very subtle. Do, you know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't. Yeah, it's very subtle, and I don't think they would have noticed that. I, I think it's it's smart and genius way of sliding it in, especially for the time period we're talking about. But I don't think due to the very repressed time frame we're talking about, or as some people in America call the good old days, that repressed time period. Uh, I don't think that audiences who want to see this film would have noticed that they would have been so locked in on all the tough guy, you know, stuff that they would have missed some of that underlining hidden homosexuality that was uh, in front of their faces because, you know, they just weren't looking for it and didn't know anything about it. Oh, yeah. it's. I mean, you, there's even, like, main, there's still movies now which do this sort of stuff. Hence, you watch X-Men First Class, the scene where you've got Charles and Xavier and they're sitting on the bed where they meet uh, the Wasp girl, and they're having this little conversation, the way they're sitting and stuff. They have a full-on <laughs> relationship <laughs> going there that's deeper than a friendship. And even they talk about, like, a world without women. And so you see in the modern <laughs> films and it's even though we're like in more open times you still see like certain films which will tread that line but to think of a film from the period like hinting at such things i mean it you had to remember this period we've got like films such as like um like the cannabis panic movies being made and where if you like smoke pot you're going to be a dope fiend and you're going to go out and mug old ladies and stuff so <laughs> the idea yeah. of having i mean there's public safety movies about the dangers of homosexuality from this period yep. uh, and it's sort of like where you just got like young men being seduced by these wildly older men that that want uh, things from them so I think it was, an, it was really sort of brave of Kubrick to include that sort of reference but then again Kubrick's been someone who's always played by Kubrick's rules Yes. so where he was actually going with it was supposed to be as intentional as it was or maybe it was just something that they were trying on the day and it's sort of well this, this works let's just uh, leave this in the film I'm not too sure but but certainly it's uh, something that um, that really sort of stood out to me. And everything else was like very sort of like period design and stuff like, you know, going to the bus station and stuff. And you just don't think about if you now did a film where it's sort of like, oh, we're going down to the Greyhound station. It's because these are like a lower rent to people. You have to have a sort of higher status um, sort of hangout. So if you're going to do like a drop, you now have to like do it at a train station and stuff because it has got the same connotations that now if we were to use like a bus station. Now we associate bus station with the poor and the homeless and vagrancy we don't not somewhere that you're gonna carry out part of your heist uh, we know it's <laughs> yeah. like uh we're serious or like no just going down the bus station you've got everyone in their suit yeah. and tie and everyone's looking all real dressed up and nice because you know everyone took the bus no one really drove us out, so now another thing that is that i would say is different from reservoir dogs in this film is stanley kubrick builds a crazy amount of tension with the build-up to the job like between him jumping back between the characters and us knowing that there's, you know, one character might be trying to con another character and all this other stuff that's going on and the vast scheme that is going to require all the moving pieces to pull off this heist at a racetrack during, you know, the, the season's biggest, you know, stakes race. 
It's different because in Reservoir Dogs, we don't have that. We fall into the job post. We get to meet our characters and we, you know, we get to meet what kind of, you know, colorful characters they are. And then all of a sudden we're thrown into this instance. Someone's been shot. They're driving back from the job. We have no idea what's happened. So we're more like confused. We're more trying to figure out what's happened. As if, you know, you know, we hear some people talking about something happened down the street. And now we're trying to put together the pieces of what they're talking about. Where in this one, we know where we're leading up to, but it has a lot of tension to it. It's, it I don't want to say it's like a horror element. But it had some horror element feel to it with this this movie, The Killing, because all these moving pieces, like, we have all the information, not all the characters do, but we don't know how it's going to turn out. And you felt nervous for the characters all the way even up through the job. Like, at any moment, you felt something was going to go wrong because some characters didn't trust each other right off the bat because of some other characters. Like, I think that's the big difference between the Reservoir Dogs and The Killing, especially, is in Dogs, I never felt that much tension. The most tension I ever felt was in the lie story of the commode, where at one mm. moment, I thought he's going to get arrested and it's a story that's bullshit. You know what I mean? Like the whole time. Because, you know, we're, we're still trying to figure out who, you know, who did what, what happened in this job. So we're still kind of trying to grasp the straws to figure out the particulars in Reservoir Dogs. Where in this film, we're given everything and we, we we go with them. We're almost like a side character, but we have all the information. And, and it's almost like we're a mute. We can't tell anybody anything. How did you feel? Did you feel a similar kind of tension that he was building? And do you feel it was different than dogs? Yeah, I think it's definitely different than dogs. I mean, obviously, when we look at dogs, Joe is running a string of heists at the same time it's not just the one heist here we have got a bunch of guys being brought together for the one heist it's this is going to be the one shot of getting them out of the situation and this is going to be the be all and end all a lot of them are career criminals but this is going to be like the one school which is just going to set them off they're going to be living the easy life from now on and this is like whereas when you look at dogs joe says at numerous points is when they have the discussion about um who's going to be mr black um, and he's sort of like, oh, why don't I be Mr. Purple? And he's like, I've already got another Mr. Purple in another job. So it already indicates that like Joe is running multiple jobs. He's got his whole operation in is just running jobs. He brings people in to pull off jobs and then he sends them on the way. There are very few people he will work with again and again. People like Mr. Blonde, he obviously has a relationship with. We get an indication he has a sort of relationship with Mr. White. But I think obviously with Mr. White, he's got a reputation as like a career, a professional thief. Yep. Um, and he's knows people with in the world of thievery, which is something you would never think that you know <laughs> that they have their own LinkedIn. <laughs> so it's like it's like, oh Bama, I know Bama. <laughs> She's doing a <laughs> job now with someone else. Good little thief. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas when we look at this job, the the only like Johnny knows like all the players. So he knows who he needs yes. to go to to get all the bits. It's got more in common with Ocean's Eleven than it yes. does with Reservoir Dogs in terms of like the heist team setup. Every person in this team has a role to play whether they're part they're on the inside or they're there to provide the distraction yes everyone has their part to play and we can see in many ways the way that certain people would only know the one part of the job and other people know another part the whole time it's going through i couldn't help but think of like the opening of dark knight where you've got the different guys and it's sort of like oh i was hired just to break the vault and <laughs> said yes. to kill you and yes stuff. And, and you don't even know who the joker is until the reveal yeah. towards the end of it on the bus yeah Agreed. Which is obviously another way of uh, spinning this. Obviously, we know Johnny's like the mastermind behind this. At the same time, yeah. he tells people what they need to know. Nobody yes. knows who the sniper is. 
Nobody knows who's causing the ruckus. The only, yep. the main guys in the job pretty much know each other already because we've got one who's the bartender, one who works as a cashier, uh, another's a dirty cop. So they all yep. sort of know each other already. They all know yes. who these people are. So it's it's a real interesting sort of plan where obviously you look at dogs, everyone is using colors, same as like taking a pen and one, two, three, yep. because it's uh, hiding their identity. No one's allowed to talk about the previous jobs they've done. It's this yep. complete anonymity because Joe does not want one of them being captured and then going, oh, I can give you this piece. And then they link yep, to everyone exactly. else. Whereas with Joey, he just like, he does the same sort of thing. He just gives people the information they need to know. It's like, this is your role and this is what you're going to do. And I think that's why it works so well in adding to the tension because everyone's part needs to like fall into place. It's sort of like if the sniper misses the horse, for example, yes. it means that they don't have the distraction. If the ruckus course in the bar doesn't like attract the security, then they can't get into the office. Yep. It, it's so great when you get into that the heist. It's a smartly it's... planned heist. It, for yeah. 1956, a smartly planned heist. It's a better planned heist than Heat at the end. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it really <laughs> is. It, you, you go, you go. God damn these. I mean, he was. They really thought this out. And again. It also is, uh, you know, the security and the stuff that happens in 1956 is completely different than obviously the stuff that happens in Heat because you know we've got eyes in the sky now, you know, and that's and we're even 30 years almost past that. So, but for the times, it was a really smartly planned heist. I mean, it was damn genius almost. Yeah, and it's those are the facts. It's all in the simplicity of what they're doing. Um, a lot of it requires more to do with timing than sort of like going to their guns blazing and brute force because they basically know that if it goes wrong, they're just going to lock it down and they're only going to have this one shot at getting to where yeah. they need to, to get into. And I think the, the fact, as I said, it's not just like a standard stick-em-up. It's it's guys working smart. They're trying try to draw attention to themselves. They're trying to yes. get in and out before so that by the time they realize the money's gone, they're already sitting on a beach somewhere. Yeah. This is the whole thing. And this how the plan ultimately comes undone as well. It's just a, it's a simple thing that causes uh, Johnny to sort of like lose everything that he's uh, he's he's fought to gain and, and throughout this plan. So. It's fantastic. The ending is just funny. That woman and her dog, I would have <sighs> like drop kicked it into the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Now that's actually a great segue because now we're going to talk about the influences that at least I saw. And if you saw others, please, if I don't bring them up as I go through this, please add to them that I mm. found from watching in this film that really parlayed into Tarantino. And now it's time to present the evidence. And I'll say this. Tarantino has said that Reservoir Dogs is his The Killing in that it is his take on a heist film. And they're completely different heists, obviously. This is a jewelry store heist in Reservoir Dogs that we never see. And the other one is a full-on robbery of a... I've never seen another film that I can recall that did this, but a robbery at a racetrack during the $1,000, the $100,000 some kind of sweepstakes race. And it's a genius way. Number one. One of my first things I found is I believe that a lot of the characters in this film, in Reservoir Dogs, QT-based, you know, the tough-talking, no-nonsense characters on the archetypal gangsters from the film we watch. Now, when they talk, they have that, you know, they do have a bit of that noir, tough guy, you know, we only talk in tough terms kind of thing, where obviously Tarantino made his a little more personable, but yet they were still tough. You know, when they're sitting at the table in the beginning of the film, and Mr. Blonde Joe says, uh, Joe, you want me to shoot this piece of shit? And Mr. White's like, you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. You know, it's that don't back down. Even Joe mm-hmm. says that when you were talking about when they're giving out uh, the colors. These guys don't know each other, so no one's going to back down. You know what I mean? So I feel like he definitely used some of the character archetypes of not just this film, but obviously from the noir films to build his uh, Reservoir Dogs characters from. 
What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think that when it comes to when it came to Tarantino forming his crew, it follows the very sort of typical high sort of setup. Everyone is going to have their role. It's not just that you've got like five loose cannons on your team. Everyone's sort of like going to just slow make it up as they go. Everyone has been assigned a role, and we see that with uh, when Joe breaks down the plan sequence and he sort of like says who's on security, who's dealing with the vendors at the back, and you'd see Mr. White go over the plan as well when they're doing the stakeout. The same time with this one they're more they're more sort of like professional all about the job whereas Tarantino yes adds this touch of reality to it the fact that criminals aren't always just going to be talking about the job they're going to talk about pop culture they're going to yes. talk about just day-to-day things they're going to bust it of shops and i think it's that element of reality as you know as exaggerated as tarantino's reality is that he brings to the film but certainly he borrows a lot of the sort of like the traditional sort of setup and we see this sort of time and time again when he does certain genres such as like when he does like revenge movies it sort of falls that very similar trope of like person wrong person then has a list of people who wronged them and goes after them yeah silly what tarantino is taking though from here is is really just sort of like set up like the idea of having this one one person and having not everyone know who the plan is and just knowing little bits of the plan and stuff so i think that was certainly a big inspiration for it of how to plan a heist is what tarantino is taking from this agreed and i think anything that you sort of reference after this i think you would sort of like go oh that's like the killing so yeah. if we did like take a pellet one two three that's like the killing it's all yeah. like pretty much yeah. everything from this point it's all like they took uh it from uh kubrick's film so number two another thing that kubrick kind of did and you know it was interesting because i had forgotten about this but i believe the dog's non-linear storytelling takes a cue from the killing now not exactly in the same place but kubrick uses some flashbacks to give the viewer backstory on the characters where dogs takes a step further by showing you know by jumping further back in time to reveal how the group was kind of infiltrated like especially when we go to mr orange or he gives us quick little backstory on how each person gets out or you know we get to see that joe and mr white know each other more than we know just like mr blonde knows them more which will come into play when we get to the end when you know orange shoots blonde and orange has no idea how close blonde is with joe and especially nice guy eddie but we get that backstory on mr blonde and then we also know that mr white has been friends with joe for quite some time because also in the flashback with orange joe and white are there together it's you know it's nice guy eddie it's joe it's mr white and orange when they're meeting to figure out if they're going to put him on the team so clearly without saying it mr white is technically kind of the captain of this team that joe has put together and that's why he's brought him along to see if you know mr white can work with mr orange on this upcoming job number three definitely in this film the killing definitely tarantino was inspired and influenced for sure and then used it as references to tell his story in dogs for his character flashbacks where we kind of get flashbacks of each player like well at this time while this was happening this was happening you know so i I loved how uh, kubrick did it because it was it was seamless too it was really well done you know like it was funny i was was watching like (laughs) i had to keep reminding myself that he didn't take it from tarantino tarantino took it from him you know i was kind of sitting there going oh man that's kind of like what tarantino did what was your thoughts i completely uh, agree with what you're what you're saying there i think certainly tarantino is obviously takes this is the thing with which you'll probably come to time and time again over the course of the season is the fact that tarantino while obviously accused of stealing ideas he just more i still see it's the fact he's scrapbooking ideas is his Agreed. construction of the ideas which is where the magic lies it's not so much the fact that oh you you've done a film which is like that can be compared to this other film with in case of uh restaurant dogs he's obviously taking the framework of how to pull off a high from the killing um and at the same time he's borrowing the style of share elements from city on fire which obviously it 
mainly takes the ending of City on Fire to provide his inspiration, but I think certainly with this one, it's sort of like where other films would just like have a bunch of crooks and we're supposed to go along with this. With this one, he's taking the time to fill in people's backstories, their motivations for it, and I think that's what he, Tarantino's certainly taking. And as you said, with the flashbacks in Dogs, he goes into pretty much the backgrounds of every character, apart from Mr. Blue, who's played by uh, Eddie Bunker, who was actually professional. Yeah, and Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown it jumps into Mr. Orange's, but only so we can see how he dies. We don't really get anything else about Brown either, which is, I think, intentional to keep us guessing who still is, you know, because Brown could have been the rat for all we knew up until that point. Francis Buscemi as well, who's Mr. Brown, the most Weasley yeah. of the group. <laughs> but yeah, it's so interesting the fact you've got a career criminal in Eddie Bunker there, who's played Mr. Blue. I know. <laughs> so I think certainly when it comes to like backstories of of characters just not just having like five random hoods go to pull a heist yeah it's like taking the time to like what motivates a guy to be involved in this it's like look because then again the fact that these guys they have jobs they work at the racetrack they've got steady income what is yeah. it that motivates a guy to like go you know what i'm gonna go rip off my employer yeah and we get that backstory yeah one guy's wife is sick and one guy's wife's a fucking pain in the ass who ends it all for them <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah that's really what it is and the other guy's just a career criminal and he wants to you know get out of it and the other guy's a dirty cop who you know clearly drinks a lot on the job and it's not worth the shit so that's it i think that's one of the key things that we can see from like yeah. Tarantino taking away from this movie is just in terms of how to plot a heist but yeah yeah exactly like the structure like he saw some cool ideas and he's like oh i like those and as i've always said he took the ingredients and makes a better the killing like i haven't seen it in a while but re-watching it, like it is a it's an amazing film it's an excellent film especially for the time period like like you said it has got a lot of modern stuff for it especially you know it was ahead of its time where i don't mm. think a lot of people realize that and i'm hoping people who are listening to this will go and watch it because it is really good i think you're going to really enjoy it but you're going to see the references that, and the influences that Tarantino had, but you also notice that it's not like a spot on just, hey, I'm fucking taking this, and now it's part of my film, a ripoff. Number four. Part of the ending that I felt that was definitely taken was the shootout at the rendezvous has a similar outcome as that of Dogs, because what ends up happening in this film is someone has leaked that they're going to pull this heist, and so people go to rob them, because basically they let them do the heist, and they're going to come take the money. Oh, yeah, it was um, things yeah, well, I don't want to give too, I don't want to give too <laughs> oh, much away yeah, for those sorry. who watch, but what ends up happening is, is you know, the money may or may not be there, and then some, some shooting starts, and obviously this is 1956, so we only get to see a few people shoot, and then also we kind of get the aftermath and almost everybody except one person is dead and i felt that was one of the things you know that he took and also people have been double crossed and and it's like the weakest member who gets out alive which mr pink does so there's a lot of some similarities but the shot it's not shot for shot taken you know what i mean so we suddenly see that everyone's dead you know who's there even the people trying to come in to try to rob them and then like the mr pink type character he gets away but he's badly injured as well so i felt because we're about to get into city on fire in a few minutes that where we'll talk about the, the Mexican standoff in that film that's you know gets a lot of you know talk about that Tarantino took from it I feel though the ending because we'll talk about how that ends differently the ending in this one felt more like how Tarantino decided to go with his ending for his standoff because all parties except for Pink and who's not a part of the shootout unfortunately but all parties die everyone in that building dies except for Pink when he goes out uh, your thoughts definitely agree um, so in the Mexican standoff it's such a wonderful motif that appears within a lot of the Tarantino movies the idea of everyone has guns pointed on someone 
else. And I mean, obviously, Reservoir Dogs has is the one that a lot of people go to, but we can go back. This being a very early example of the Mexican standoff, it's very popular within Asian cinema. You see it time and time again within, within that. And the only thing that beats the Mexican standoff is two characters with guns in a confined space, be it a car or like smoking aces, does it in a lift. And he just had two guys in his little, like, both of you know you're going to pull the trigger, but there's no escaping for this. <laughs> so, like, who can pump the other guy full of more bullets quicker? Well, kind of like what he does in uh, Inglorious Bastards at the beginning of that little kind of Mexican stand It's two men, really, and then all of a sudden the third adds in for the fetus on your Nazi balls. But those two guys have been pointing pistols at each other <laughs> since they sat down, and they both know that they're not going anywhere. It's like, well, you're not going anywhere, neither are you, so fuck it. Everyone else, we don't know how they're going to turn out, but you and I are dying here today. I kind of I kind of like that, too. That's he, you know, look, he, he clearly is inspired by all these films, by the stuff that he sees. Yeah. But so I guess that'll bring us to this question for this film. And now it's time. To read the verdict. Was QT inspired, do you think, by this film, or did he rip it off? Tarantino was definitely inspired by this film. Um, I think he knew better than to try and rip someone like Kubrick off. Kubrick is one of the few directors who manages to achieve the status of legendary director, and there's only a handful of directors who you can say have done that, such as like Spielberg, who he was mentored by Kubrick, and Scorsese, who would say until late in the day has uh, be, now been recognized of it. And this idea that to obviously achieve the status, you have to work in pretty much every single genre to prove yourself. Tarantino I would say is definitely one of these directors who we're going to view as being a master director and he somehow managed to just work within the exploitation genres so revenge and crime and war and uh, westerns so the fact that we can still view him as being on the level of like a Scorsese. I'm not sure he's ever going to be viewed on like the God level of like Spielberg and Kubrick, but I think certainly he's going to be a director that when he chooses to hang up his uh, spurs, he's definitely going to be like remembered. He's going to be someone, I, and I think he's going to be happy where his position is because it's going to be someone like a Leon or Corbucci or even like an Eastwood uh, sort of level. He's going to have this amazing body of work that we're still going to be parceling over and drawing things from for like years to come. I mean, we're still talking about dogs. We're still talking about yeah. fiction and noticing things such as the fact that in Pulp Fiction for years nobody noticed the fact you see Vincent go to the bathroom at the start and it's like we to someone points out it's like wow that I never noticed that and that's what I love about Tarantino there's always something new to find out so in terms of ripping off inspiration this is definitely more in the inspiration category you can see like obviously maybe he got his love of tracking shots from seeing this because Kubrick has some beautiful tracking shots in this but certainly this is definitely more this film's more providing a framework work than Agreed. something to be imitated. I agree. It was inspired as well. And he didn't, like I said, he took the ingredients and he made his own stew out of it. And I mean, if you're going to take some ingredients, I mean, Kubrick's definitely a person that you can take from. And <laughs> But again, like the, the two movies are completely different. You know, one is we, we know the heist. We don't even see the heist in Reservoir Dogs. We don't even know what's happened. We've never seen it. So I joined that part of both of the movies is that they both are a kindred spirit to one another, but yet they can both be enjoyed completely by watching them. And you'd be like, oh yeah, okay. I can see where Tarantino got inspired by that, but you don't feel like it was a ripoff at all. You just feel like, man, that's he was really smart to be able to put that in his own movies and make it his own and basically slide it past people if they're not paying attention. In the case of the killing, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. Now, our second film. It's time to call our second witness. Our second witness is the 1987 Hong Kong crime film City on Fire written by Tommy Sham and directed by Ringo Lam. An undercover cop infiltrates a gang of thieves who plan to rob a jewelry store, starring Chow Yun-Fat, Danny Lee, Sun Yi, Carrie Ng, and Roy Chang. Made on a budget of $5.3 million, but only grossing $784,000 at the box office. 
it holds a 7 rating on IMDb while having an 85 critic score and a 74 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Now taking the witness stand, City on Fire. Ringo Lamb from 1987. It is a Hong Kong crime film called City on Fire, which a DVD that I have that I watched it on. The people from Total DVD have a blurb <laughs> on the front of it that say, without City on Fire, there would be no Reservoir Dogs. Now, I have some issue with that statement. I understand where they're coming from, especially now having seen this film. This film, I had not seen. I had heard nothing but good things about it, and I would heard about it, but for some reason, ever since the... And look, you probably can talk more to this than I can, but again, I also think being on different uh, continents and across the water from each other, you may have had more access than we get over here, but when Tarantino came back in the 90s, came out in the 90s, we had a quick influx of Asian cinema here. We got all of the Chow Yun-Fat, all of the John Woo films started coming here. We They were in DVD stores, you could rent them at Blockbuster, had all of that stuff. I can't fucking find these things for anything today no one has them Uh, no matter what boutique i look for whether it's online like trying to get these films is like trying to pull teeth out of a fucking snow monster that is a rudolph the red-nosed reindeer reference thank you (laughs) (laughs) it is extremely impossible to find these films now again i'm sure if i were to go down into new york city i could find some down there but again like to actually be able to find them easy or stream them without like almost illegally doing it not that i did that but i might have without doing that it's almost as if asian cinema in america has dried up. It's almost as if since Kill Bill went away we just don't have the influx of it. Like John Woo has disappeared from America. Chow Yun-Fat has kind of disappeared. Maybe everything everywhere all at once will maybe reinfuse it but that's really not a movie that is dipping into the Asian cinema so to speak. So it was very hard to find this film but I finally found it and I watched it and I enjoyed it. I know you probably enjoyed it because obviously you do a podcast and I'm sure you've covered this. But I would like to say before we get into everything that by the end of this, I do not believe the blurb at all. There are definite things that Tarantino has influenced or ripped off. We will decide that between the two of us. However, if you watch this film, unlike watching The Killing of Reservoir Dogs, we can feel a kindred spirit. There is no kindred spirit except for the end scene in this film. That has anything to do with Reservoir Dogs. They are not alike in any way, shape, or form. That is my opinion. Mr. Jones, what is your opinion on that and that statement? This is a really tricky one. This is because Tarantino, I would say, lists about five scenes from this film um, and puts them into Reservoir Dogs, but he shoots them in different ways, the different sort of setup. But they're definitely, you can put them side by side and say, this is definitely a reference that he is making to City on Fire. At the same time, if you listen to the Video Archive podcast, uh, the episode with Eli Roth, they were talking about, you know, how people like say that he ripped off City on Fire and there's the opening minutes. He's sort of like, no, I just took the ending of City on Fire and built upon that the same way that like you can look at Smoking Aces and say that was just built upon the end of True Romance. And there's different ways you can sort of look about this but i know that no i don't think if it hadn't been for cinema de salon basically saying that pointing out the fact that reservoir dogs and city on fire were so similar no one would have heard of city on fire and it would have been this obscure little oddity because ringo lamb is for agents of a fantasy he's a, a recognizable name he's done a lot of really great movies he's done a lot of movies with like Charlie on fat and then he's like gone over to the west and done a lot of direct dvd movies with van damme which is his main fan now he did like in hell <laughs> and replicant you know those classic van damme movies yes oh love them 
Some of my favorites. But so with Ringo Lamo, in over this period, I mean, this is really him making some of his best movies. He's doing things like this and Full Contact and Prison on Fire, Prison on Fire 2, School on Fire. You'll notice with Ringo Lamo movies, if he can't put the word fire in the film, someone is getting set on fire in one of his movies. <laughs> he has got a reputation of being a pyromaniac in one form or another. He's the most happiest if he can do both. If you can have fire in the title and have fire in the movie. No, but this movie, I mean, this is really kind of a departure from his usual sort of style. Um, it's less of the sort of gung-fu sort of movie that we saw. And this is actually more just of a heavy stylized crime thriller, which obviously has Chayun Fat as a, a Mr. Orange of the piece. And should we say he's an undercover cop who's infiltrating this jewelry yes, gang? Yes, but very different from our Mr. Orange. Very no, different. <laughs> Yes, we'll get into that in a second. And I would say a very different role for, you know, fans of the Chow Yun-Fat that you see in Better Tomorrow, the killer. Like, he's a completely different character. He's a very big badass in those films. In this film, he's not such a badass, I would say, in my opinion. Yeah, he's more of a devilish rogue in this one. Yes. Um, he's um... almost like the Hong Kong version of, like, a Bruce Willis from uh, Moonlighting as a yeah. cop, as opposed to, like, him as, like, Die Hard, as John McClane. Yeah, he's another cop, but he doesn't want to be an undercover cop because he sympathizes with the criminals he's, he's infiltrating too much. And this is his whole thing. He don't want to go back undercover because the last job he did he had to betray a crook that he become friends with so he doesn't want that to happen again but at the same time they know he's the only guy for the job and because <laughs> the, the first guy got stabbed horribly at the start of the movie wonderful bloody face print in the sheet yes so he's the guy that they're going to send as a cover they know he's going to be the one who's going to infiltrate this gang and at the same time he's He's more of a crook than he is a cop. And I don't know this because he spent so much time undercover. He's now like living life by his own sort of code. At the same time, he's kind of a goofball because he's um, got a fiance who's got the patience of a saint for the most part who yes. puts fact he's like constantly postponing the wedding because he wants to get this job out of the way first and at the same time she's like i'm gonna leave you i'm gonna go off and marry a rich man and stuff and we see at the same time he's still like these wonderful back and forth that he has with uh with his girlfriend where he's like trying to charm her and she burns him with a cigarette and i mean she's played by Kerry ning who's just yes. uh, a cat free actress and she's Sex and Zen, and she's a bunch of really other great stuff. And Chairman Fat here at this stage, he's still early into his career. He's done a couple of like the badass movies, so he's done things like Better Tomorrow. So he's been doing work with John Woo. And with this one, he's just like, as I said, he's still early into his career, so he's got the youthful look. He's a bit of a rogue. Um, and so as he goes on his career, would sort of go towards playing more roles like in The Killer and like the Better Tomorrow movies, where he's sort of like the trench coat clad, sunglass wearing, toothpick chewing. Badass. Yes, yes. Like dual welding and stuff. Yeah. Um, with <laughs> like, well, the every man. Yes, he's a very funny person. Now, I want to preface this to my listeners because this is from 1987. And if you are a John Woo fan, he he's a little more, I want to say there's less slapstick or less comedy in his films, especially his Chow Fat films, than there are in this film that we're that we're watching, that we're talking about. Um, I almost said Ringo Starr. Uh, City on Fire. Yes. <laughs> Ringo Starr, the Beatle drummer, is in City on Fire. <laughs> That's something, right? It could be jarring to especially American viewers who are not used to or haven't seen Asian cinema, especially from Hong Kong, maybe ever or in a very long time. I want you to go into this if you go and watch this 
knowing that because there are jokes and things that happen that are not for American viewers. It is obviously played for laughs for the Hong Kong crowd. There are just some things that happen that feel very slapsticky and very like almost like what the fuck is happening. But again, we're seeing it through American eyes or, you know, I'm, I'm talking about I'm over in America. I can't. I'm not going to pretend to know what the English are seeing it, but you would not maybe enjoy some of the film, especially when they say that without this movie, Reservoir Dogs wouldn't be possible. That is so wrong. There is so much that is different from this film. To include even our, our gangsters that we get. Now, there's a couple of tough guys in there, there and there, but when we open up the film after after the guy with the ponytail gets stabbed because he decides to make a phone call to the cops in a notoriously dangerous area, like a fucking idiot, so he deserves what he gets. I will say this. What we learned in these two films is if you were shot in the gut in 1956 in America, you died very quickly. If you are stabbed repeatedly in the gut with a very large fucking knife in Hong Kong in the late 80s, you could run away for a while and eventually bleed out. So I'm just saying, you may want to go for the stabbing. You you tend to live longer, at least in this film. But... What we end up getting is there is the the robbery scene. They rob a it's a jewelry store, but it's not like one that we have here in America. It's almost more like kind of like uncut gems, the upstairs where you actually have to be buzzed in. It's not like your storefront robbery that you could have. It's more like you go into a diamond wholesale place and you go upstairs and you ring the buzzer and you get let in. It's not really like out on the street. So when that happens, it's a weird thing that happens because it's there's elements that you may take from that to Reservoir Dogs, but there's like this sudden fight breaks out <laughs> in <laughs> in one of the rooms for no real apparent reason. It just seems to break out between two of the robbers, and you're like, okay, uh, that that was a little jarring. But again, not played for me. It's played for the audience it's intended for. And unlike dogs, these crooks know each other. And even unlike the killing, these crooks know each other. They are actually a part of a team who are always robbing. Almost more like a heat scenario than it would be a Reservoir Dog scenario. Would you agree with that? Yeah, this is definitely a, a group of criminals who have they've got their team and they're carrying out a string of jury heists. You said already about the fact the first one's in a jewelry factory, so they're processing a lot of uncut gems, and they've obviously got the upstairs uh, area, which, you, as you said already, you've got to be sort of buzzed into. So, if anything, Dogs takes from the second heist, which is the one that uh, yes, Channing Fox has yeah. been involved in. So, when you look at this first one, it is more closer to heat, especially in the fact that it goes south, and they're more than happy to shoot their way out. Maybe that's like a reference to like Blonde, though. I mean, he obviously, yeah, how he oh, yeah, I, well, yeah is, I have that in my notes. Yep. Um, we have this really gratuitous action sequence where like cop cars are flipping over people being burned yes. alive and ridiculous. <laughs> it's like it's And there's a lot of saxophone top. in this fucking the soundtrack is all saxophone. It is Hill Street Blues. Wait, love this yeah, funny thing is watch... I feel like this movie takes more from 1980s American cop TV shows and cop movies than Reservoir Dogs does from it. Like, there is a lot of... He's referencing a lot of American movies in this film. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but especially the, the saxophone in the A's. I was like, oh my god, I feel like I'm watching Hill Street Blues. <laughs> it's definitely a kinder spirit to some of the American buddy cop movies from the 80s, especially with the, the soundtrack and just the, some of the dialogue and the way that, you know, even Chow Yun-Fat treats his girlfriend. What, what did you think? Yeah, definitely so. I think there's definitely 
an inspiration that can be seen from taking inspiration from like the American pictures. But I think this is the same if you look at cinema as a whole. If you don't look at it beyond sort of like the Western cinema and you look to like Eastern cinema and stuff, you, you can see it time and time again where one country will establish one thing and another country is like top this is so like Romero gives us the blueprint for the modern zombie movie. He turns them into gut munchers. That goes over to Italy and like with Argento and Luch, Fucci um, and they suddenly like become these like psychotic zombie movies where there's just like goals to all gore and violence. And this is the way it sort of like when looks when you look at this film and sort of like especially the 80s sort of Hong Kong these sort of films where you have like uh, these big sort of action set pieces but with a lot of the Hong Kong movies it will be about the brotherhood of crime. You see a lot of the John Woo movies it's all about the brotherhood that characters have the bond that they have with each other um, and yes they will often be crooks and criminals rather than the cops. When you look at like the cops and stuff it's more into like the 90s and the 2000s that we see more like cop based but in the 80s it's all about these criminal gangs and about you know the brotherhood of crime uh, which is obviously what we see here and obviously what Chow Yun-Fat's character is brought into but there's definitely that's there's a lot of things that you can see from like especially like 1970s of action cinema and stuff that these directors looked at and now they're obviously getting into the field of making sort of action movies because prior to this it would been a lot of sort of like period pieces things like Shaw Brothers sort of like martial arts movies and now we're getting into making sort of action movies like this and that's why they're going to be borrowing from the Americans because they're obviously doing it first so. yes agreed there are two set pieces all right so there's the little um intro where one of the undercover cops is is killed and he has no, he has nothing to do with the current crime people were with then they jump to our first robbery we get to meet our dogs if you want to call them that who <laughs> rob this jewelry store uh or this jewelry way station kind of thing and then from there we get we really meet uh chow and fat's character ko chow who is one of the few guys who has an asian name everyone else seems to have an americanized name which was very strange well, basically we get to find him and his reluctancy to still do this job there's also a power struggle between two rival cop lieutenants kind of thing yeah they're having they're having a pissing contest you know the new way versus the old way kind of thing. There's a relationship that, it's a very fucked up relationship. Uh, like uh, <laughs> Elwood said, at one point, Chow Fat's character gets burned and in the same scene kind of, maybe, almost rapes his girlfriend. <laughs> it's just a very strange scene that happens um, throughout that whole yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> situation. I don't want to say that he, he rapes his girlfriend. Basically, he's pushing oh, his yeah, luck. He, yes, by, yes. By getting in, in a show. She's, she's, she's mad at him. And he's sort of like, because he's the... Uh, the boyish rogue that Chow Fat is. Again, this is because it is Chow Fat. If it had been anyone else, I don't think it would work, but it's sort of like Chow Fat, he's got that yes. charisma and stuff to like pull off a scene where you hop in your girlfriend's shower and you're like, you're like, oh no, we're going <laughs> to... Yeah, well, and she kind of says, you know, if you rape me, this and that. And he goes, uh, it's not rape. We're like husband and wife or something like oh, that. And oh, then like he gets yeah. he gets called away because of a phone call. And then she kind of like is protesting. Like, Don't go answer the phone. Like it's a very like it's playful. Like she says things, but at the same time, she's not meaning what she says. But again, seen through 2022 eyes or 2023 eyes now. Sorry, apologize. I'm recording. A, I'm recording in the past. <laughs> this is not being heard in the future. Seeing in that some people might be like, well, he's just being chauvinistic and all this stuff. Yeah, there are those definitely tones but again this is from 1987 and she's kind of playing this hard to get so you have to kind of see the movie but the majority of this film has zero replication of Reservoir Dogs however I'm now going to get into the influences that we do definitely get from dogs and they are strong influences I'm not going to pretend they're not and now it's time to present the evidence number one 
Part of it is the very first jewelry heist in the beginning. One of the managers won't cooperate, and these two guys start fighting over it. Well, our main guy, our Mr. White in this scenario, is named as Tiger. Tiger comes in, and he stabs this man in the fucking hand, and all of a sudden, the man remembers the combination to the safe. I have to believe that this inspired the Mr. White speech for Let's Get a Taco. The manager won't tell you something you want to know, cut off his pinky, then he'll tell you if he wears lady underwear. I believe that was definitely that scene helped to inspire what dialogue Tarantino would write for Mr. White's character. Your feelings? It certainly, uh, I would tell you, that's definitely uh, a, a, it's someone I never thought about until you pointed, pointed out, because it, I just thought this was just like a general trope of like how these guys act, but yes, that is very much true. It's the fact that you may get someone who's sort of like being tough and sort of like you put a bit of force on them and they're gonna they're gonna crumble and obviously Mr. White's example is that you hit him in the uh, bridge of the nose with your gun and it creates this big sort of dramatic reaction the apparently the Hong Kong version is stab him in the hand well yeah I mean I really felt that you know because like you said like he does say you know you know some employee why don't you shut the fuck up break her nose kind of thing but <laughs> but that whole scene where he just, he just stabs him in the hand and also the manager starts giving up I was like oh man that's that is definitely the genesis for for that dialogue like it just felt like it you know it was like wow i mean if we're saying that this is what he took from then you go yeah this is definitely one of those moments where he was definitely inspired to at least write that like i said the guy's finger doesn't get cut off but you could definitely see where you know the manager's not giving what they want they need something from him they want the combination he's not going to give it to him and they stab him in the fucking hand and next thing you know he'd remember the combination so i really felt that was was definitely an inspiration in there or an influence for sure Another one I saw, obviously, the Mr. White, Mr. Orange relationship is loosely based on Tiger and Coach Chow's relationship. Now, again, without trying to sound like a Tarantino homer. I believe that the Mr. Orange, Mr. White relationship is better developed than the tiger Chow relationship. If you watch this film, and again, this is from 1987, which is really, though, it's only five years ahead of Tarantino bringing out dogs. So there is a part of me that sees this relationship, and it's not as strong. Like, like the events that happen in the film where the two men kind of, you know, have this kindred spirit or, or like, you know, Tiger feels responsible for Chow and, and the vice versa, just like we get in dogs. I didn't feel it as strongly as I do when I watch dogs. How about you? What, do you, what is your take on that? Am I, am I wrong? Uh, no, you're definitely not wrong. I think the relationship between Orange and White is definitely a lot stronger. We see it build up over the course of the film. It's not just in this moment. When it look at uh, the relationship between uh, Coach Chow and Tiger, it is really just before they go to the big heist, they suddenly find this common ground between them, uh, where they're basically sort of sitting tight because they've got to wait for the job to go ahead, that they find this sort of common ground. And it's just really just through coincidence that they find something. I would say it's more just like, it's almost like um, Superman and Batman finding out their mother both share <laughs> the same name. It's that sort of stupid detail. <laughs> yes. But obviously, the way Ringo Lamb directs it, it's not, it's not as stupid. <laughs> but yes, it's sort of like he realizes, he's like, oh, Tiger's an honorable criminal. And it's like, my one true weakness is honorable criminals like um, whereas obviously with orange and white orange is like going in as obviously the cop he's not expecting to meet someone as charismatic as white who sort of takes him in as one of their own and treats him as this boy yeah. i mean they the two spend so much time together they I said they go for tacos they do the steakouts together he's built up this level of trust between them um to the point where white against his better judgment who have a career criminal is willing to trust a guy he doesn't yep. know just because he took a bullet in the gut for it him. even starts 
at the, you know, when he's telling the story about the commode story and the three of them are out with, you know, he's out with Joe, nice guy, Eddie and Mr. White. And even Mr. Mr. White is like, he's all in on the story. Like there, there is something that Mr. White wants to have this relationship with him for whatever reason, whether he's missing that he didn't have a son or something like that, but there's something that draws him to Mr. Orange that we see in that moment, which then makes when he gets shot in the gut or the fact that they're sitting next to each other in the fucking restaurant to begin the movie. We're given a lot of uh, clues by Tarantino without having to, you know, bang us over the head with it that Mr. White and Mr. Orange, they've grown close. And no one else has seen that. Everyone else should have seen that that should have been a, a warning sign. But those two are sitting next to one another in the fucking restaurant. And then, you know, they've they've hung out before. So I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff. And again, like you said, like uh, they go and drive off and they talk about the job together. No one else does it that we know of. So there's a lot going on there in the Reservoir Dogs that, again, just doesn't get that well developed in this film, in my opinion. Yeah, I like yourself, I uh, completely agree. When it comes to obviously with it, it comes to their relationship, I think because they they go into the job having found this bond, and that they suddenly have this this amazing uh, intense romance. I don't know what it is about Sharon Fat and Danny Lee. They constantly, if they're together, they always have really intense romances. You watch the killer, they switch the roles. So Sharon Fat plays the criminal, and uh, Danny Lee plays the cop. But they have this really intense romance for some reason. So something about uh, those two. But um, yeah, it's sort of like there's something because they have that common common ground, but it doesn't feel as believable as, as uh, Origin and White, definitely not. And I think it's more, with Ring, with with this world, it feels more like them finding the common ground is just to add that that element to the finale, really. Yeah. It's all about giving that extra edge, the fact that, you know, he's going to do what he can to, like, like uh, save save this guy that he, like, fully trusts in. And it's all about adding weight to that sort of final moment. And it's sort of like, is he going to turn him in? Uh, what's going to happen when we get the finale? Because we, unlike with dogs, we think it's just a, a bundled heist with City on Fire. We know the cops are waiting for the call yes. to come in. So we know they're waiting to bust it up. So it's not a case of the cops sort of throwing him into the situation. It's just he happens to get shot in the uh, yes. in the process. Yes. I'd just like to say Tantino did this, this element stronger. So maybe, as I said, he took the element, but found a way to make it work. Yes. Again, I don't know that it'll be the way we I go through all of them. But so far, I have felt, and it has reinforced what I, my belief was, was he's taken the ingredients and just made a better stew out of it. That's all. Not that the ingredients he took from didn't, you know, weren't weren't enjoyable, but he's been able to make them t- see them and make them better. Number three. And what I'm also realizing from some of this movie is another one of the things I, again, I feel was an influence is, like you were talking about, the unseen robbery that we have in, Re- in Reservoir Dogs. And anyone who's had the opportunity to play the Reservoir Dogs video game from PS1, which I own and have played, <laughs> you get a chance to do the host, the steak, and it's fun. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot. There's a lot of killing. Like like Marvin Schwartz says once upon a time, a lot of killing. A lot of people. You kill a lot of people for no reason. But it's a lot of fun. Um, but you don't get to see it in Dogs. In this, we get to see the first one and even the second one. And I think... That Mr. Blonde's recount of the actions were definitely inspired by the ending robbery in this film, which we actually do a evening robbery in front of people. I want to say broad daylight because it's not broad daylight, but basically in broad daylight, a very brazen robbery in a jewelry shop. And then when an alarm is triggered, like they talk about in Reservoir Dogs, one of the characters just starts opening fire and actually kills a lady. So I really feel the little comment that when Mr. Pink and Mr. White are recanting what happened in the jewelry store while they're in the bathroom and, you know, they're kind of getting themselves composed and talking about what the events that have happened, I believe that speech, again, was a result of this 
scene in this film that that was definitely the genesis for him to once again you know come up with some dialogue so so far two of the things that we've gotten in from Reservoir Dogs are scenes that he had seen and was going to talk about but it would be more of a you know you didn't get to see it let me tell you what what happened and so if you kind of want to see what Mr. Blonde did <laughs> what he was talking about or Mr. White about, <laughs> see this film because he you kind of see what they were talking about in this film what was your what's your impression of of uh, my little statement there oh definitely this is a hundred percent the the heist that happened in or supposed to happen in, in dogs is just basically Tarantino recapping what happened in City on Fire finale. Yeah, that's basically, basically yeah. So he's just sat down and so like, and this is what happened at the end of the yeah. film. They went to this jury store and then the, the one guy said, open a fire because the alarm got tricked and the cops were suddenly there. Yes. They were just yes. suddenly I mean, there. it really is. I mean, I will definitely, you know, I will say to the people from Total DVD, like, you're not wrong with what you're trying to say. I just think you're wrong in how you say it. There's definitely, I mean, the ending of this movie, Tarantino definitely saw and took moments of it and built it into his film, but I think made it his own. That's just my opinion at the moment. I think, if anything, I think Tarantino, what Tarantino is taking from this film is from that second heist. Oh, yes, absolutely. Onwards. Yes. So it's just that final quarter of the film is what Tarantino is using as the inspiration. Yes. Number four. There's a shot earlier where Chayun Fight is running away from the two um, officers yes. that are sent by uh, the younger one, which mirrors... Pink running down the road at the start of um, Dogs. When yes, when, when away we, do his, the we do his flashback and how he got away. Yeah. Yeah. You can put those two shots side by side and they're pretty much the same. Minus, minus Chai Fett jump, hitting, jumping over a car and shooting at them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, because Chai Yun Fett's a professional. Yeah. Well, he's <laughs> also a cop. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, still can't dodge bullets. Yes. Though. Number five. But there is a scene that does happen right outside the jewelry store when the cops have shown up that definitely, you know, I'll be honest, it's probably a ripoff because it's definitely the scene. But when Tiger comes around the corner, he's, you know, they're pinned up, they're pinned, and they're in this little alleyway against the wall. And Tiger pops out as they bring up almost like a kind of like an arm. It's not really an armored car, but it's kind of like maybe their version of like a it's SWAT a four vehicle. By four. And he pops around and he opens fire with two guns on them, just like Mr. White does. And that's yeah. definitely taken from this film, no doubt. But they're completely, completely different. Well, not completely different, but the, the way that they're done is different. He pops around, shoots him, kills him. This time the car does not flip. <laughs> um, but that being said, it's definitely an homage for sure. When Mr. White walks away from, you know, Mr. Brown has just died and Mr. Orange is standing there, he goes over, unloads on the cop car that comes up on him, kills the two cops, and then they move on. And Mr. Orange has a real guttural response. We see it in his face. Chalian Fat does not. Chalian Fat's character does not fucking care. He is not upset that those cops have been fucking killed. He could care less at that point. But I will definitely say that that one moment for sure, if there's one moment that was definitely taken beat for beat almost, it's definitely that moment. Your thoughts? Definitely so. Um, this is the way that movements, even the facial expressions are very similar. When you look at the way Dan Lee uh, looks when he's unloaded oh, the, just the pistols, cold, it's got, got that the glasses sword. on, just cold killer. Yep. And then you compare it to Kaitel, again, cold professional killer, unloading round after round. The only difference is obviously it's a cop car in America, it's a Land Rover in yes. the Hong Kong version. Yes. But you still have the same shot, the cops like jacking around as they're getting you getting unloaded it, on. Yes. And yes, it's the same, same level of overkill. I think when it comes to Obviously, with it being Hong Kong, that we already at this point we're already so used to, and especially when this film came across the West, we were sort of like seeing a lot of the Ringo yep. Lam Service films. We've seen a lot of John Woo, so we're used to like dual pistols and unloading like round <laughs> after round into people. So that didn't really sort of stand out as much as it does now when you put it sort of side by side. And same for Tarantino to take that 
level of uh, of, of gratuity uh, when it comes to like the violence and stuff. I think that was him definitely giving a nod to yes. to the east there. The only thing that he shouldn't have done, Kaito is shown reloading his guns as he walks away. If this was a Hong Kong movie, no one would be reloading <laughs> unless they can do it in a stylistic yeah. way. They drop him and jam him into something. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah exactly. That's it. you only reload <laughs> in a in a in one of these movies. If you can like do it stylistic, so it's in slow motion. It's like the clip does so he's like bangs and everyone and he's like carries on shit. Kaito obviously in uh, Tarantino's uh, version, he's there reloading as he walks away, and that's what makes it not just the true Hong Kong homage that it should have been. So. Well, I think what it also did is is when you watch it in City on Fire, it's cool. Like it's a cool sequence. You know what I mean? Like it is played for badassery, mm. and it is in Dogs too. But there's more weight to it in Dogs, if that makes sense. And I'm again, I'm not trying to make this like Tarantino's the guy, but there's more weight to when he does it because, like I said, it's really based on the reaction from Mr. Orange. Now we know Mr. Orange is the the undercover. We know he's the rap, and now we're watching him have to continue to play this part of being undercover and watch the guy he's you know he's kind of like worked his way under kill these cops. He's watched it full force and just walk up and shoot him. There's nothing he could do about it because he can't stop it. He's got to let it happen because at the end of the day, what they're there for, as he says to Marvin, who's bleeding out, is they want Joe Cabot. When his bald fucking ass walks through the door, that's when they descend on the rendezvous to get him. So there's a little more weight to the moment in Tarantino's film as opposed to Ringo Lamb. But that being said, he definitely ripped it from City on Fire. That's 100%. I will definitely say he definitely yeah. got that from City on Fire. The big difference between the two is that Ringo Lamb's doing it in the heat of the heist. Yes. Whereas when we see it with Tarantino, they already escaped from the heist. So they've had some breathing room of it. At this point, they saw the end of the pursuit because I remember Tarantino's character, he's Mr. Brown, has been shot yeah. in Yeah, and the then the face. car, like they run into something because he can't see and then the car won't start. And so they hear cops coming around the corner. And so Mr. White goes over to kind of like put that to a, a kibosh. Exactly. And whereas with is he's still in the heat of the heights. They've just uh, escaped from, from the jewelry store. So they've got cops coming in them everywhere. And this is sort of like his moment just to like try and get that breathing room. But because it's still in the heat of the heights, we haven't had enough room to sort of process what's going on. And we're shown, obviously, uh, the scene where he sort of unloads on them yeah. quite late in Tarantino's film as well. It's sort of like in the third yeah, quarter that we see that sequence. And we've had a lot more time to sort of like uh, breathe with this. With this one, we're still in the heist mode. We've got like cops coming at us from every direction. Yeah. We're trying to get away with the, the jewels here. So it's got more in tune with like heat. Yes. Um, as you mentioned before, like them doing, having the big shootout. Yeah. This is now on the streets of Hong Kong. It's very sort of packed and busy. And we, as I said, we've got cop cars everywhere. We're trying to get away. There's not like there's many places to hide because they're all the streets are all like packed. Even the alleyways are packed. So the fact that to create that breathing room means they have to like have this one big moment of violence to sort of like take out the immediate threat so that they can create enough of distraction to get away. I think Terry, in fact, this point has been shot already. Yeah, I was going to get into that because he has a very similar moment to a Mr. Orange, but just a little different. Chow and fat has been shot by the cops, and he he's returning fire, which is something Mr. White or Mr. Orange doesn't do at the cops. And he actually kills one of the cops, who's one of the main side characters, who, again, it's done with almost like, we don't care. As the audience, we're like, fuck that guy, because he kind of tortured him earlier in a scene when they thought he was a criminal. So we're kind of like, ah, fuck that guy. We're glad he's dead. And and there's no way to like Chow fat just turns the corner, shoots, and and there's like no you know response. So he's like, yeah, fuck it, he had he had to go. Because moments later, uh, after this shootout, we get Mr. Orange gets shot in the gut by the woman that they're hijacking from the car, and he ends up killing her. And in reaction, just like you know, like, like a knee jerk reaction. And there's again weight to him doing that. He's like he realizes what he has just done. He has just 
shot an innocent woman who thought she was being carjacked. I guess the difference in these moments are it's a Hong Kong action set piece where much like American action set pieces that we've had in, in our action movies, there's not a lot of weight to them. We don't, you know, like when people die, you're like, yeah, that, it was like a defined line. That's a bad guy. We don't like them. Fuck them. I'm glad they're dead kind of thing. Where in this, there's a little bit more of like, oh shit, there's real consequences to the things that are happening. You know, like Mr. Orange has had to watch two of his fellow officers be killed so that they can arrest one guy. Like they were sacrificed so they can get this one fucking guy. And he's like dealing with that. And then in the same moment, he gets shot and just knee jerk reaction kills an innocent civilian. You know what I mean? Like, so there's more weight to what's going on for Mr. Orange's character as opposed to Chow and fats character. I mean, when it comes to obviously Mr. Orange's character, I think when Mr. White guns down two cops, he's still caught up in the adrenaline of the moment. He's not used to being in like being pursued by the police. He's not used to being like, he thought he was going in, it's going to be a professional job and the heist was going to go correctly. It wasn't all going to be completely botched the way it has. And the fact that when he shoots the woman, it's such a knee-jerk reaction because he's been shot first. He's almost in shock. He's sort of like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> Just yeah. like shoots her back. And then you see him like realize what yeah. he's done. When it comes to like Cherry on Fast to the fact that he's so detached really from being a cop, he's more in tune with like the criminal yes. brethren he hangs around with and that he has contacts on in the criminal world and I think the fact he sees himself as being more of a crook than a cop yes, um, it's only really his his superior that sort of keeps him <laughs> on the right track yeah. who's so like his mentor which is Inspector Lowe yeah. who is played by Sun Yi he's the one who sort of keeps him on track. Everyone else is sort of like too uptight. They're just there to like bust his, his balls and stuff. But he's sort of like the mental figure who like keeps him in track. And obviously he did, I just got the impression that he was just more sort of ingrained in the criminal world. I mean, the fact he's, been pretty much undercover like long term so he doesn't really see himself as being a cop in the same way that Orange who I want to say it's his first time undercover because he obviously has to be schooled yeah. in how to do a cover story and that so it's not a world he's familiar with he's not used to like he's been told that you know everything's going to go according to plan this is going to be like a smooth job and obviously it's not and he's sort of having to fly by the edge of his uh, by the edge of his uh, seat <laughs> to really sort of like uh, to sort of like figure out things as they go I mean the fact that uh, you mentioned already about the fact he's he has to sacrifice other cops yeah. because he knows what the end goal is even like with marvin being, being tortured there i didn't realize the actually exact wait until you pointed out and this again this is the great thing about podcasting <laughs> we all learn things as we do this so well, it brings us to the end of this film, which is where the crux of the without City on Fire, there would be no Reservoir Dogs comment from Total DVD comes in. Number six. It is the Who's the Traitor Mexican Standoff Policeman Reveal section that is the end of this film. Now, when the heist is over, they make it back to this rendezvous. And unlike in Reservoir Dogs, where Mr. Orange has already told them where the rendezvous is. Like, he's already given up the goods and where they're going to meet and how it's going to be. And they already have cops waiting. They're just waiting. The basically the plan was if they can't get them at the jewelry heist and they somehow get away, they're going to get him at the rendezvous. That was basically what they were going to do. In this film, Chow Yun-Fat leaves his wallet in a cab at the scene of the crime and they find it and he gives them like the directions or the location of where they're going to be meeting up so the cops eventually show up there well when they're there all of a sudden they you know you know they feel like oh there are cops there's got to be a rat among us and then all of a sudden you know they point at Chow fat because he's the only new person so there is some similarities for sure and you know the, the boss is pointing at him and everyone's you know pointing guns and then obviously Mr. obviously Tiger steps in for him so he saved my life and you know it's very similar to what we get kind of towards the end. Except the difference being is that you've got only two guys left in dogs, and then you've got a father and son combo. 
who come in and they don't know what's going on. Like, you know, like Joe shows up and nice guy, he's been trying to figure it out and he's just interrogating Mr. Orange and White because his buddy, Mr. Blonde's been killed and all these things are coming to fruition and Mr. White could give two shits because he hates fucking Mr. Blonde. So th- there's all these things that are playing in Tarantino's world that keep us off kilter and even keep the characters off kilter where the one guy comes in and he's upset that the that, that you know someone made a uh, you know ratted them out and then the cops come up and they make it you know instead of like in dogs where also they come in after all the action happens they show up during the action so they start shooting at them so it kind of breaks up this Mexican standoff and what ends up happening is the boss then kind of like turns on all of them and kind of like you know without me you'd be nothing kind of thing and so like there's almost a shootout inside between these crooks and the boss which is completely different than what Tarantino has going on and then. We get the the reveal, much like we kind of get in Reservoir Dogs, but I don't want to give away that ending, but it definitely ends differently. And Reservoir Dogs ends a little bit more along the lines of what happens at the end of The Killing, where everyone dies. So, yes, there is definitely a kindred spirit between the two. The difference being in the Mexican standoff is the Mexican standoff in Reservoir Dogs has real consequences because there are two people who are father and son and that's one of the reasons the Mexican standoff starts is Joe's like I'm going to shoot this piece of shit Mr. White's like no you're fucking not and then Nice Guy Eddie's like whoa are you really pulling a gun? like Nice Guy Eddie's the one guy there who's like trying to end the whole violence he's like why are you really pulling guns on him and then all the blue you know Joe just has had enough and it sparks everything and they just start shooting each other and then we get the ending we get and then Mr. Orange as Mr. White's telling him you know we're going to do some time and he goes, Larry, I'm a cop. And then we all know what Larry does. Larry realizes he's it's over and he kills Mr. Orange and then he gets killed himself. Now, while the similarities are there, obviously we have the Mexican standoff. We find out that there's a traitor. But it's really kind of quick because in Dogs, we know there's a traitor almost or there's a spoken of a traitor almost immediately after we after the movie begins. It's what permeates the film until Mr. Blonde goes to light someone on fire, and then we learn who the traitor is, and then we go on another ride as we follow Mr. Orange's, you know, career through, and we forget that he's not really about to get arrested by cops in a bathroom. You know, we kind of get taken on another journey, and then we make our way back, and we find everything out. So, yes, there is definitely kindred spirits to this, but I don't believe, and I'm going to let my guest answer his version of it. While there is definitely kindred spirits, I do not believe this is a full ripoff. He was definitely influenced by the events, but he completely added a little more depth, a little more weight to the scenario, and it definitely ended completely different than what we get at the end of this film. Mr. Jones, your feeling on that? I definitely so. I think Tarantino took this sequence and did it better. Um, when we look at the Ringo Lamb version of this this sequence, it's a much more. It's almost like a shack that they've escaped to. So it's a much more compact sequence, and it's very much almost like an afterthought. It's the main interest of it to Lamb really is the fact of like Sharon Fats cover being blown. Everything else that happens in the in the scene is just for sort of style and tension purposes. Tarantino obviously looks at this and does a much cleaner version. We look at the end of dogs and it's a wide shot everyone's more faced out and we've got more of a definite more of a triangle everyone's got that sort of space it's so we get a better look of like who's pointing guns at who at the same time we've also got more relationship between this because we spent the whole film establishing relationships who these characters are so as you said already we've got the father-son relationship we've got the friendship relationship they've got the professional relationship here and you've got a number of wild card elements in it obviously orange but can he be trusted mr pink can he talk people down can you know is he gonna snap people in by saying this sort of like i'm the only he's frequently points out i'm the only one being a professional here you lot <laughs> are all a bunch of fucking amateurs but this is tarantino's thing when most people like kubrick when we look at the killing he's made a film about professionals when we look at 
Tarantino's movies, he makes films about idiots. Yes, yes. everyone idiot thinks they're professional, but they're, they're really idiots. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, as I said, uh, Vincent shoots Marvin in the face. These guys are busy beating each other up and acting like they're in preschool. <laughs> there is, um, even like you get to kill Jackie Bill. Brown. Buds are drunk. <laughs> Jackie Brown too. Jackie yes. Brown's like yes. the biggest bunch of idiots going. Yes. <laughs> it's so... There is the only one professional in all the Tarantino's movies is Stuntman Mike, and that's because he works by himself. <laughs> yes. He's the only guy who can carry through a plan. The Inglorious Bastards are wild cards, yes. essentially. Once upon a time in Hollywood, Cliff, we don't even know what his backstory is half the time, whether he killed his wife or not. The fact he finds unique ways to constantly screw up these yes. opportunities he's given for his movie star buddy. So it's like we have this stream of like idiots, whereas with Ringo Lamps, while they are sloppy, they are still professionals. Yes. And they are very sort of still very heated in the moment. It's sort of like, it's sort of like you guys have screwed this up and it's his fault. And then obviously um, Tiger's like, no, he took a bullet from me. I'm not going to have you like blame my friend for this. And and then unfortunately, he allows the cops to start shooting at them for some reason. And that breaks the tension. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like it really, and they, it, well, the tension's not broken in dogs. That tension breaks and then no. that's the end of the stand. Off, really no dogs is all just focused on the stand-up nothing's going to interrupt it it's going to end badly and we're going to see there's going to end in one or two ways people are going to put their guns away and come to the senses or they're going to open fire and this is what we're where the whole focus is it just all comes down to all these things that we've been building it all culminates in this one moment and that's where tarantino has lifted this moment from city of fire and he's just obviously used it as the real sort of central point of the film is sort of like how can we get all these emotions, all this uh, feelings with everyone else in the group? How do we culminate it? Mexican standoff. And this is uh, where he's obviously taking this, whereas this one is more sort of like a stylish choice. It's more like a group of people infighting. And because they got guns and very quick to anger, that's why they're all pointing guns at each other. And the fact there's cops outside, not helping the situation <laughs> either. So I just love the fact that the Hong Kong Police Department, their, their procedure is just to shoot first and ask questions later. <laughs> they got, they got, I mean, it's after American movies. So, I mean... Not too far off. <laughs> they, they were trained by American police who came back in time. And now it's time to read the verdict. Now the big question. Was QT inspired by City on Fire or did he rip off City on Fire? Your belief. I would say out of the two films, this is the key inspiration for Reservoir Dogs. I don't want to say it's a ripoff just purely because it is five scenes that he's doing, but he's also doing them within his film. As I said, the running sequence, when he turned fact running down the yep. scene, the the whole heist sequence, um, in particular, like the dual pistols, the Mexican standoff, these are elements that he is taking from City of Fire, but he's working them into the structure of his film. Because there's so, so stylized moments that he's choosing to lift, though, it's hard not to say he's ripping off this film. You've got to look at how he's using it, and this is the same throughout his filmography. It's how he's taking this information, how he's using it. It's sort of like, like yes, the Crazy 88 were like the same mask as uh, the Green Hornet. They've got the the domino mask, and they all these, like, the fact that Pai Mei is basically Basically, the monk abbot from um, *Under the White Lotus*. He's taking these elements, and even like uh, like someone like Hitori Hanzo. Yeah. He's a recurring he, character in Japanese He's obviously shows. got his own. Yeah, he's got his own history there, and sort of like his version in *Kill Bill* is sort of like 
the next uh, generation of this character. So I don't, as I said, I don't like to say he's ripped off, but he's certainly drawing heavy inspiration from this film in particular. Uh, every other film that you can link to this, like uh, The Killing or Taken Pelham 123, is all about adding to the structure, only adding a little bit of flavor to it. But the key inspiration is definitely City on Fire. I would agree. Uh, I would say, and I will say this as the reverend of this church, <laughs> he rips off one moment for sure. He rips off Tiger, who is the basically Mr. White character for this movie of City on Fire, the shooting. When he pulls the two guns and he shoots the cops. That is definitely, he definitely takes from that. That's definitely. Everything else, like you said, he has lifted, but he has made better. And I even think he makes the shooting better because there's more weight to his doing it. But as far as we're going to go by the scene, he definitely takes from that scene. That is definitely, I mean, he's referencing it completely. He's just, he's basically taken, that's his shot for shot of that scene. He just adds more weight to it. He just does it differently. It's not in the middle of the heist. It's at the end of the heist while they're getting away. So he changes it up. But if we're going to go shot for shot, he definitely steals that moment. That's it, though. And again, if you're going to stay by shot, I mean, we can probably go through 20,000 movies and say that shot was ripped off from this scene. But again, I will give the credence where it belongs. He definitely took that definite bit from that movie. Everything else, he has borrowed the ingredients, and I think he has made better completely from both of these films. Although, The Killing is a spectacular film, but you're right. This is It's definitely a a more kindred spirit to City on Fire as far as the imagery and the moments we get. But I also think some of the tone is more kindred spirit to, obviously, The Killing. In the case of City on Fire, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. However, we do find him for shamelessly copying another Artur's work without proper credit, even if it is the better of the presentations. But that is just how we look at it. And so we'll leave it up to you, the viewers, or the listeners, I should say, to go watch these films and then uh, let us know what you think. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. But that's going to bring us up to your wrap-up questions. They're different this year. We are going to do some some different. We're not doing the old because we didn't watch the Reservoir Dogs. You've seen it. We're not going to go through and ask you what your favorite this and that was because you've seen it. I want to talk about these two films that we watched. Which of these two films that we covered did you enjoy more? And which or both would you recommend to my listeners? I'm going to take the controversial opinion and say that I enjoyed the CO5 more. It's definitely a film that I've seen a couple of times and it's got, it gets better the more you watch it and you understand the beat and the flow. And obviously it has got erased already about those controversial bits about uh, rape. But I think this is just a uh, very much a cultural thing, especially in Hong Kong cinema and in Japanese cinema, that rape has a very different sort of meaning and connotation in within the cinema. So you watch a lot of Asian cinema, you kind of <laughs> become numb to it. You, it becomes kind of background noise. It's uncomfortable when it is there, but is not um, something that you sort of raise a major flag over. But I'd say that my recommendation of the two, I would say City of Fire is is uh, my personal favourite, but I would definitely recommend you check out both. I think they're fantastic films, but they have their own individual merits. And I think it's very much a case of if you like Hong Kong crime thrillers, then... Or American noir films. Yeah, then I would say watch City of Fire. But if you like the noir uh, style, like the Humphrey Bogart and uh, James Cagney, Kiss- Deadly, things yeah exactly um then you would probably get more out of the killing but the fact the killing has had a criterion release and looks so clean and polished you would think it's a modern movie so i think it's funny that you watch city of fire and it looks like it's been kicked down the stairs and it's pretty grimy the cut that they the print of uh, this one but you look at the killing which is like (laughs) a movie it's like brand spanking new so yeah that would uh for myself i lean more towards city of fire than the killing perfectly okay 
Now, did watching these two films help enhance the brilliance of Reservoir Dogs, or did it tarnish it for you? This conversation certainly did. I think I, I enhanced uh, or tarnished. I'm just not sure which one you're going with. Enhanced. <laughs> it enhanced it greatly. There's a lot of aspects we talked about that I haven't really uh, thought about. This is. I think this is. This conversation has been up there with like Brian Fuller explaining the family unit in Alien. <laughs> it's well, I like, appreciate that. Jeez, that's uh, high regard. I, I, I appreciate like, that. I never realized that it's sort of like the fact that um, that why Ripley goes back for the cat is because it's a member of the family. They're a family unit. It's like it just like blew my mind. So um, there's a lot of elements we've talked about in this show, show tonight, especially in terms of like the relationship stuff that I really took away well. But I don't think it affects my viewing of Reservoir Dogs, though. I think just in more just in like a companion piece. It's all like, oh, that's funny. You know, he took this element and that. I don't think that either film sort of add or detract from Reservoir Dogs. It's a little harder to say it with City on Fire because obviously City on Fire and Reservoir Dogs are so uh, similar in many ways, especially in that the final quarter of uh, City on Fire and obviously how it provides inspiration, the catalyst for what Reservoir Dogs is. It's sort of like everything that Reservoir Dogs is, is is sort of like built out of what he saw in that final quarter. It's sort of like that's where he he takes his inspiration from and he builds it outwards from there. So Yeah, it was like he he it's like he took the killing and he wanted to do a heist and he said, Well what heist should I do? And he goes, Oh, city on fire. You can see the two yeah. or the two kind of and you put the two together and you go, Oh, there's the ingredients. That's where this is where he designed this whole thing from. And then obviously some other movies thrown in there as well. But yeah, I would agree with you on that. It is. It's so like it's one of those rare movies where it's a heist, but it goes wrong. Yes. We're so used well, they to both they go don't wrong, even which get is, which is great. Goal. You know, both of them go wrong. Well, I mean, with the killing, they they can't, they actually carry off the heist. Yes, it's yes, just everyone yes, turns yes, on yeah, everyone else. Right. Yeah. The ending of it doesn't go well. Uh, whereas with with dogs and city on fire, the heist is doomed <laughs> from the start. <laughs> it goes wrong from like the minute dot. So that's I would say that's the the connecting tissue there. And finally, did your opinion on Tarantino as a writer-director change after watching our two films? And if so, in what way? No, um, I don't think it's, it's changed it Changed in the fact that when I got into Tarantino, it was always from the perspective of, like, here's a guy who's, like, super knowledgeable films. I think my own, it's because I saw on the special features and he's talking about, like, all these different films, it's like, I looked at it and something spoke to my brain. It's all like, I want to be like that guy. I want to be, like, knowledgeable about films and I want to discover stuff. And I think that's when I started really getting into sort of studying film, um, looking beyond just sort of like, this was a good experience. This was a bad experience. And so, sort of like, looking into, like, shot composition and how things are told and stuff. And I think it's sort of like, I'm really sort of like branching out and finding obscure movies and stuff rather than just sort of like what was uh, happening in the mainstream at the time i think it for myself he certainly inspired that in myself so i think knowing that he was always coming from the point of like scrapbooking ideas i never really thought of flow like the what he's borrowing from uh sort of adding to him as a writer i think it certainly adds to his idea palette and makes him more interesting as a writer director because he's borrowing from such interesting sources whereas some people like scorsese are borrowing a lot from like the french new wave which isn't exciting. But Scorsese makes, takes those like ideas that he sees in like things like Breathless or Killer Sheep and makes them interesting. Um, whereas Tarantino takes interesting ideas and then like puts them all together to make something really interesting. So yeah, I've, as I said, I don't think watching these sort of like maybe change my opinion on him as a writer director. No. 
And that will do it for the first episode of our second season. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Mr. Elwood Jones, host of such podcasts as the Asian Cinema Film Club, the Movies and Tea Podcast, the TV Good Sleep Bad Podcast, and the Game War Podcast for joining me again today. I had a fucking blast investigating whether or not Tarantino referenced or blatantly stole from the movies that influenced his directorial debut, Reservoir Dogs. Now you can find the link to all of Elwood's podcasts and his socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. I would also greatly appreciate you giving this show a rating and a review so that I can prove once and for all to my family that people actually do listen. Now be sure to join me again in two weeks as Steve Smith, my Cheeky Bastard podcast co-host, joins me once again to debut our monthly hymnal devotional. Much like last season's Bible studies, each month on the devotional, me and my special guest will take a deep dive into one of Tarantino's movie soundtracks. First up is Reservoir Dogs. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.